Okay, welcome everybody to Southeast Asia Connect. We are starting in a few minutes while we see our attendees uh, coming online. Um, the numbers are climbing fast. I'm sure we are in for a, a new record today. We have fantastic guests and a super interesting topic. So social commerce in Southeast Asia does it check out today and it's episode six, Chris. Chris, can you imagine? That means already what, three months? Last we've made it. We've actually cracked the uh, six episode barrier. Yeah, so next next stop is first Golden Globes or, or the Oscars? You know, I'm not sure, but um, you know, I'm glad to announce that we are going beyond our initial six episodes and uh, we've got very interesting guests as well for the seventh episode. So uh, thank you for all the community for getting us uh, up to this uh, milestone for us. Fantastic. So let's get started at 5 p.m. today on July 30th. Welcome to Southeast Asia Connect. This webinar and series is brought to you by uh, Precious Communications and Northridge Partners. It's the place where the money needs the startups, where the startups need the idea. And it's all about fantastic experts and our live Q&A section where we'll answer your questions. So everybody tuning in, please use the Q&A section, not the chat function of your uh, Zoom console console so that we can uh, see and uh, you can also upvote the questions from the audience. We'll have at least 20, possibly 30 minutes for your questions. So please keep them coming in. Also, thank you to everybody who already shared them beforehand. So uh, my name is Lars Fudisch. I'm an economist by nature, but startup fanatic uh, by passion. Uh, I'm here from Precious Communications and we work with over 300 startups, um, venture capital companies, organizations, um, and founders, um, and facilitated communications at the excess of over $10 billion for M&A activities. We're getting close to that number today. And my co-host, Chris, the man, the man for the money. Head of corporate partners at where we work with Southeast Asian entrepreneurs to raise capital, grow their businesses, and exit. On today's topic, social commerce does a checkout. McKinsey, just like many other experts, have noted that consumers have vaulted five years of digital acceleration in just the last eight weeks recently. And one of the undeniable trends here is social commerce. For the purposes of today's discussion, we're defining social commerce as the facilitation of e-commerce transactions on social media platforms via communities and conversation. Often, but not always, leveraging on digital influences, but using social media to build customer attraction, trust, and loyalty. Now, what's all the fuss about? Well, Pinduoto, the social commerce company in China became the third largest online retailer in just three years, stunning everyone's expectations. And then Jingling, another superstar, raised 100 million on its Series C late last year. Right here in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, we have Ecomobi. In Indonesia, we have Mucho and other companies such as Fingo. Ecomobi 
has already done transactions in excess of US 150 million in GMV. And because to shop, you need money, today's episode, we actually have two investors to talk on this topic. And we are just simply very lucky to have, for getting the money part one, Helen, who's responsible for Southeast Asia for the legendary Chinese VC firm, Qiming. Fund and management of $6 billion. Her firm is responsible for no less than 30 unicorns. And as a absolute ringing endorsement has just closed a new $1.1 billion fund in April. Qi Ming has invested in Jingling, Mucho, Miliko, and Fingo, which we'll talk about today. And forget the money, part two. Sachin is at B Capital, a unique joint venture between Facebook co-founder and its first CFO, Eduardo Saverin, and of course, Boston Consulting Group. And again, last month, just raised over $800 million. So I just can't wait to talk to the over or next to $2 billion of fresh funds in the room. But before we get to that, Lars, today's poll. Yes, so um, let's have a look at the poll to get the discussion starting about uh, social commerce. Is it the new Fed? No, it will go away eventually. Yes, it will take over everything that's out there. Just a yes or no question. Um, so not much thinking for our uh, guests out there. So if you just click yes or no, um, and we hear um, the numbers are coming in, I'll just count it down. Chris, what's your take? Fed or not? Uh, it's going to take over. Take over the world. Take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's close the, the poll and have a look at the result. Yes, it will take over the world, 85%. Good. Um, so I'm sure our guests, Helen and Sachin, are very happy um, because that's the right topic and uh, you have the big, uh, yeah, the, the wallets to make it happen. <laughs> so world domination, kick it off, Chris. Thank you. And Helen, starting with you and really just to start to kick off why social commerce, for those of you that are in the audience and aren't familiar with Chi Ming, Helen, can you kindly provide a brief introduction on Chi Ming and then your background and how you ended up running Southeast Asia for Chi Ming, please? That was a stunning question. <laughs> Helen? I think she froze. So why don't we start with, uh, ah, there she is, okay. Okay, hi, hi, sorry. Um, yes, uh, thank you for the question. So yes, we are a venture capital firm, um, you know, based in China and uh, we have been investing in the consumer internet for a very long time. Um, on the topic of social e-commerce, I think it's especially interesting because I was involved uh, with the Alibaba investment in, in 03 and uh, saw the rise of Alibaba and Taobao over the uh, past uh, 15 years or so. And um, I think that 
when people pose that question to me, you know, is social e-commerce going to take over the traditional e-commerce? Um, it's, it's kind of a big question for, for me to answer because I, I, I still think, you know, very well of a Taobao. <laughs> but I do agree that uh, there's been so much uh, growth on the, on the social uh, platforms and uh, that could be a very interesting change. And so for me, uh, coming to, to Southeast Asia is really, you know, looking at what has, um, you know, happened in China and uh, being able to share some of my experiences uh, with Southeast Asian entrepreneurs uh, is what brought me here. not only congratulations on your latest fund, but your recent investments in Mucho, Fizzo, and Maluku. Can you kindly share, I guess, what attracted you to these investments and what was the thought process with reference to the investments that your firm has made in China? So, for example, with Jingling and also Mishu Tuan, or otherwise known as Shuhui Tuan, which is a community group buying space. Hello? Yeah. Okay. So, um, sorry about that. <laughs> okay. As I think about, um, you know, social e-commerce, uh, first of all, I think maybe it's, it's helpful if I just categorize the, uh, what we think of four categories of social, um, social e-commerce. I think the first is uh, we think of it uh, group buying, uh, which has uh, Pingdodo, uh, you know, perfected the model and uh, has become a, a huge uh, company. And then um, the second uh, wave, I would say, is like the Yunji model, uh, where there is uh, maybe, you know, there's a layers of agents and maybe there's a membership fees, maybe there isn't. Uh, Jingling, the company that I invested in, is in this category uh, without any membership fees, but uh, they do have, um, you know, we, we call them agents that help to share their posts and help to get users to buy. Um, I think the third wave uh, that we saw, um, you know, in China is what we call the as to B to C wave, uh, where you actually have uh, platforms. Uh, we have something called Kaoyiku, which is a bit similar to Misho in India, uh, where they actually um, also have uh, agents. But the agents are, are not just sharing the post; they actually do mark up the price and they actually control the users. And um, the users are not uh, shared with the platform. And then I think we saw the fourth wave, which is community uh, group buying. And that um, category was uh, mostly on the uh, groceries, uh, fresh groceries. Um, for that category, we've invested in Shihui um, Tuan, or um, in English, they call it Nice Tuan. Um, and they've done uh, pretty well. They're probably the number two player in China right now. Um, so I think when we looked at Southeast Asia, we felt that there were certain, um, you know, characteristics which were which were common you know for to China so for one thing the social platforms uh, have a huge user base um, and actually I think in Southeast Asia is even more interesting because we saw that C2C uh, social e-commerce is actually very big and if there was a chance to move that to a more professional uh, B2C social e-commerce uh, that option could be quite big so when we looked at some statistics uh, for example I think in, in Vietnam um, uh, you know, the C2C social e-commerce is about 25%. In Thailand, it's about 48%. So almost 50% um, is actually the C2C social. So there's already a lot of sellers and buyers that are familiar um, with this, you know, whole process of buying online, whether it's on Facebook or online or one of these social platforms. Um, but it, maybe they're doing it in a very uh, haphazard way. You know, the, the sellers are 
sourcing from a wholesale market. So if you can um, enable them to be more professional, maybe provide them with training through supply chain, um, you know, and help them to acquire users, that could be uh, a new platform emerging. So that's uh, the reason why we invest in Fingo. Uh, Fingo is uh, active in uh, Thailand and Malaysia. Um, and then we did an angel investment in uh, Mucho, which is uh, in Indonesia. And they, um, they have since uh, launched uh, Miliku, which is a community group buying uh, platform in Indonesia. Yeah, they did uh, very well with Mucho. And Yiming uh, is just so busy at the moment building his business. Uh, Thailand's quite interesting because, Helen, as I understand, Thailand globally is probably one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, social e-commerce markets uh, for them uh, 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 in the world. Uh, you mean in terms of the social platforms? Correct. For, yeah. for Facebook. Thailand's one of the key markets. Yeah. Um, and big on this theme is really the acceleration, thanks to uh, COVID. Um, could you please comment in terms of through your portfolio companies, uh, in general, COVID has accelerated digital transformation, but in particular, uh, how's it impacting on social commerce? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, the impact of COVID uh, actually went through different phases. I think in the first phase, um, when the lockdown started to happen, uh, you see that, you know, there was a, lot of logistical issues, right? Um, whether you could actually get the goods to the users and then, you know, um, in certain places, factories were, were even shut down. I think China factories came back the earliest, so the impact uh, wasn't as big. And then you maybe had a bit of a higher cost in logistics, but on the whole, um, you still could get the goods. And then on the demand side, I think, um, you know, during the lockdown, everybody was at home. So actually, I think we saw a pickup in um, e-commerce orders. But as the lockdown um, is gradually unwound, I think um, you see the more economic impact on uh, e-commerce users. So I think it has been um, a little bit mixed. I think some users are actually uh, maybe more hesitant to, to buy goods that they are non-essential, whereas on the essential side, you still see, um, you know, continuous um, purchase behavior. I think on the, in the longer term, you know, that the COVID um, would have, yeah, accelerated um, e-commerce adoption. And so in the longer term, you know, that should be uh, a, a big boom for these e-commerce platforms uh, that do well, yeah, in terms of, um, you know, user conversion to e-commerce uh, that has definitely accelerated. For investors, because as I understand, uh, you know the, the, the customer attraction and retention and conversion is so much greater. But uh, over to you, Lars, with our second guest, because we've got an avalanche of questions that we must get uh, into. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, and just a reminder for everybody: we have the first Q and As uh, trickling in, so please continue and keep them coming, and you can upvote, so that gives us a little bit of an idea what you're most interested in. So uh, over to, to Sachin, um, we've heard Helen's comments regarding the last six months on social commerce activity. What, what's your take on it? Yeah, first and foremost, uh, uh, let me thank, uh, thank you and Chris uh, for, for having me on this uh, panel today. It's great to be on. And also I, uh, I hope everyone is staying uh, well and safe through these uh, fairly unprecedented times. Um, perhaps I'll just give a quick Quick uh, uh, background on B Capital. Uh, as Chris mentioned earlier, we have um, raised our second fund, $820 million uh, fund, and we invest uh, 
primarily in the US, India, and Southeast Asia. Um, we tend to have more of a B2B focus, perhaps in the US, in this part of the world, the consumer-led tech story is still very strong. And so we invest in both the B2B and B2C space. Uh, and, and we have a strategic partnership with BCG, uh, which, 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 which I think is very unique. Um, how, does it, how, do, how does it work? Because it, as you just said, it's a very unique setup. Uh, one of the world's uh, most established and, and, and inspiring uh, management consulting firms uh, entering into this JV um, for a, a VC fund. Yeah. Uh, how, so, how does it work uh, no. how, as a setup and what's the strategic advantage that BCAP brings to the market? Sure. So I think that um, Lars, we are we are not a captive fund. Uh, so so we are, we are we are independent. Our partnership with BCG is a strategic one where we you know have full access to their network and resources, and so do our partner companies. And I think for BCG, you know, tech and the new economy has been really front of mind, and we are sort of that bridge and catalyst for them into that world, right? Um, and I think that brings a lot of value to our portfolio companies as well, uh, be it with customer relationships, be it with just, you know, uh, the knowledge and, and, and sort of network pool that BCG brings to the table. Good. So with the new fund out there and uh, social commerce booming, um, yeah. what, what's, what's your take on, on the social commerce space? Sure. Um, so we, we've been spending a lot of time uh, on social commerce in the region. And last I spent pre-COVID, I would spend half of my time on the ground in Indonesia. And I think I would just start by saying, and Helen touched on, on, on some very key points already, so I'll try not to repeat those. But I think, you know, the beautiful thing about Southeast Asia is really we have the benefit of hindsight, right? Uh, sort of, you know, the new economy in this part of the world is anything between three to 10 years behind that of China and India, um, depending on sector. And so, you know, we sort of, you know, have the opportunity to see what's worked, what's not worked, and, you know, how you can apply a nuanced and localized approach to some of these business models in the region. So, you know, you've, you've seen the Mishos and Pindodos proliferate across China and India. And if you think about this part of the world, consumer behavior and the pain points are very similar, right? So it's, it's still a nascent space, but as players find product market fit, um, you know, different business models have emerged, as Helen touched on earlier, across different product categories, uh, targeting different users, right? Based on, based on city focus, based on demographics and whatnot. So, you know, what we find interesting, and perhaps I will quantify that through, a, through an example, right? Uh, um, uh, you know, both macro and, and business model. Take Indonesia, for example. Total re retail GMV, depending on estimates, is anything between 200 to 250 billion dollars. 85% of that flows through traditional channels. Tier two and tier four cities make up 90% of the population, but 75% of this of, of this retail expenditure is coming from tier two to tier four cities. Bearing in mind that internet penetration in these areas are really low, uh, at only 20%, right? So it's a very underpenetrated market still. Uh, e-commerce as a whole, uh, e-commerce penetration as a whole is still low. So 70% of the population in Indonesia has yet to make uh, an e-transaction and it, and it is in a hyper growth phase, right? So it's expected to double in the next three to four years. 
And on top of that, social networks have played a crucial part uh, for, for internet users in a country like Indonesia, where 80% of total internet users are using social networks. So the sort of macro uh, on its own is very exciting. And then one might ask, what are the pain points today uh, of traditional e-commerce? And I think that can be you know, very quickly segmented into the customer side, where you still have low digital literacy, especially in rural areas. You have lack of online uh, purchasing trust and awareness of brands. And social commerce really helps you alleviate these problems through the propagation of goods, through social channels, and through leveraging trusted agent and reseller networks. Customers are also able to embrace more affordable and local products, right? So if you think of the core value proposition of the social commerce players, it's to provide better access, choice, value, quality, and transparency, and convenience as well, layered through a deep sharing and social elements platform, right? And on the supply side, I think there are some great learnings from China, which I'm sure Helen can echo, where acquisition costs per user on traditional e-commerce channels have just spiked, right? So if you look at JD.com, it's increased nearly tenfold to about 1,500 renminbi over the past few years, while the acquisition cost for Pindodo is only about 100 renminbi today with much higher user retention rates and better customer uh, purchase frequency. And if you look at upfront and initial costs of doing business on Pindodo, it's less than 10% versus Taobao. And also you are able to sort of reactivate users quite organically through high frequency social media. And I would say the last component is really on the infrastructure side where the main issue today in a market like Indonesia is logistics is expensive. There are 17,000 islands and you know, uh, logistics accounts uh, you know, amounts to about 25% of the country's GDP, right? And the traditional B2C players just lack the right capabilities today, given they are sort of fighting it out in tier one cities. So given the sort of macro and given the, the, the you know, three elements within, you know, uh, the pain points and, and, and business model question, we find social commerce to be one that is particularly appealing, especially given the first gen e-commerce players are well-defined, right? They are well-defined, they are well-funded, they have huge balance sheets. And so it's really about second, third gen commerce in this part of the world. Fantastic. Well, there were some, some really good, good insights uh, over, over there. Um, just maybe one, one follow-up question because uh, you, you touched on that with 70% uh, of uh, the population in Indonesia haven't done an e-transaction yet. Is the low penetration of credit cards uh, or even uh, you know the high number of unbanked or underbanked actually a, a way um, an issue to hold the growth of uh, e uh, social commerce back or as an accelerator because it kind of sidetracks the to some extent the traditional uh, model. Lars, I think if you are thinking about um, business models outside of tier one. Uh, cities, then it is an accelerator because most of these business models have an agent and reseller network. Um, and these agents and resellers act as a tool for customer acquisition, for product discovery and logistics, and they also manage the cash on delivery. So uh, certainly outside of, of, of your main cities, uh, I think social commerce is an accelerator. Okay, fantastic.
That's actually quite interesting because what we see is, uh, you know, a democratization of opportunity, if you like. I mean, you know, social commerce is actually being able to amplify a lot of people's voices um, if they don't particularly have the money, especially with influencers. And then what we're looking at is looking at serving these tier two, three, four uh, kind of cities. And obviously, um, there's quite a lot of economic activity that is ex-Jakarta when we look at Indonesia. Uh, but um, Lars, on to, you know what? Rapid fire, exactly. So uh, rapid fire, just a couple of uh, questions where it's a yes or no, left or right, you have to take your pick, yeah? So each of you should answer the question uh, with a one sentence kind of answer, ideally. So social commerce, always been there and nothing new or new social media is really changing buying and selling behavior forever. I think it will change, yeah, I mean, can I say both ways? <laughs> in one way, it, it, it was always there, but in another way, it's an upgrade and making it more professionally and you know, more effect efficiently done. Yeah. Sachin, your take? I, I'm fully in line with Helen there. Okay, then, then let's, let's up it a notch. Social commerce will kill all online marketplaces and retailers or only the weaker ones that are you know, destined to die anyway? I would say kill the weaker ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. the weaker ones. The large ones are not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> well, Helen, Sachin, sorry, for our audience, can you disagree on something? We're going to keep asking them until you disagree. I asked him first this time. Um, so with social commerce, will challenger brands have a better chance to compete and beat the Coca-Colas of this world, yes or no? Yes, definitely. Um, I think you're seeing a proliferation of local brands across uh, these platforms. So for sure. Helen? Yeah, I agree. I think um, in China, I mean, we haven't seen like major new brands, but then a lot, what, what we see is a lot of uh, C2M. So where, you know, whether it's the agents or the uh, customers, you know, they group together and then they, with that scale, you can go to the factories and get a lower price. Uh, but I think that's because there is so much excess capacity in China, right? And on the manufacturing side. So uh, that might not be a dynamic that is uh, prevalent in Southeast Asia, uh, but it's worked very well in China. Okay, and then the last rapid fire question, social commerce boom, driven by excited teens or bored moms at home? I think more board moms at home <laughs> and, and more moms. by people who want to make um, some extra money. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, good. Indeed. That was rapid fire and over to the pitch with Chris. Billion dollars of fresh funds in the room. All our founders are dying to know the answers to these questions. Helen, you're still actively investing and quite understandably, like, all VCs nowadays, there's simply too many deals to look at. Helen, if I was a founder, how would I begin to have the right conversation with you upfront in order to engage meaningfully with you and your team? I think um, for us, yeah, we definitely are very interested to continue to look at new deals. Um, but I think that the key is, um, you know, does it fit into our investment criteria? So, um, you know, we look for fast growing companies, uh, typically in the series A to B stage. So if you're too early, like if you're just doing an angel round, um, you know, it may not suit us. 
Um, and also, if you are doing something that is in a more traditional sector, uh, not in consumer internet or not in enterprise software, it may not suit us. Um, so I think maybe just, you know, understanding where, what we are looking for and, and making your uh, pitch, you know, very, uh, very concise. I think that would uh, that would be very helpful. Fantastic. And one of the benefits of having your own webinar is that you can say hello and embarrass your friends who have joined. So hello, Bobby Lou, thanks for joining. And um, just uh, related to that, Helen, has there been anything that's maybe changed in the way that you're looking at pitches in the last six months and in addition, pitches online. So for example, uh, one of our earlier guests, Nick from Cathay Innovation has said right now, uh, he understands the, uh, uh, the companies on, you know, he's been a series uh, season investor. So what he's looking for is not necessarily a pitch, but reassurance instead. Uh, has there been a way of, you know, the messaging that you're looking for now that's different from before, or you've always been longer term on these trends anyway, so there's been no difference over the last six months? Um, yeah, I would say that we have been more long term on the whole. So, you know, there's not been much difference in what we're looking for. Uh, but I would say that um, there has been, you know, a shift to more looking at, uh, you know, the unit economics, not just growing for sake of growth. Um, and also, I think, you know, having enough runway. So because we feel we are not sure what the funding environment is going to look like. Um, so I hope that, you know, the company can uh, get to, you know, cash flow positive or at least have a sense of, you know, how much runway they need um, to get there. And Helen, uh, you know, everyone would love to absolutely have chipping on their cap table. Is there one or two things that I must not say to you to make sure that uh, you don't run away? <laughs> Um, no, I, I actually welcome any entrepreneur to come and talk, you know, um, I think maybe the most frustrating meeting sometimes I have is when people are not sharing much and um, either, you know, because of some confidentiality or something like that. But, uh, you know, if, if you are really open to working with us, I just, uh, I'm very happy to, to talk more to you. Okay, great. So Sachin, um, for yourself, I mean, you're just like Helen walking around with too much money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, what's the best way of engaging with you? I mean, what should this conversation have? Where can it start? Um, and also, what shouldn't they say <laughs> to you? Sure, sure. Perhaps I perhaps I'll start slightly differently, right? Because first impressions matter. And so when you meet a founder, I think what we are really looking for when we meet a founder is, you know, a good balance between the macro and that is the vision the founder has for the business versus the micro, right? How deep the founder can go into, into the details when we're having a conversation. And it's also a good balance between sort of grit and hustle and confidence, yet, you know, being humble and willing to listen and having empathy. And, you know, essentially a founder who not just demonstrates strength, but is also aware of his or her weaknesses, right? Where I think I can provide some perspective here is from a growth equity standpoint, right? So say at a series B or C in this part of the world, you are underwriting a pre-money valuation of $100 million with a raise of $150. Um, that is, you know, $150 post-money. And if you are going to write, you know, underwrite a 5x exit to that, taking into account dilution and whatnot, you are almost looking at this, you know, you know the business essentially reaching unicorn status, right? So what the, the founders really have to do is provide comfort around large outcomes. 
And so, you know, at, at this stage, they would have, you know, they would need to have demonstrated clear things like clear product market fit, strong elements of market leadership, a sustainable revenue or monetization model, and, you know, high user retention and engagement, right? And things like unit economics and valuations and exit prospects can't be ignored as well. I think one frustration we've, we've you know, I've, I've had personally is you come across founders who are raising series B at series C valuations, but at series A business models. And I think given COVID and given the current environment anymore, you know, those kind of deals are going to be, you know, you know, hard to do, right? Um, so I would really say, you know, founders need to think in the context of the investor's risk reward profile and work backwards. In terms of not, you know, in, in terms of not what, you know, what not to say, you know, I, paranoia is a great trait of all founders. Um, and you do meet founders sometimes and you ask them about what keeps them awake at night and what the risks are to their businesses. And they say there are no risks and we have no competition and I sleep well at night. And when you hear that, we don't sleep well at night. <laughs> uh, that's a very, very good statement. I, I, I like that, right? But, yeah. uh, but, but, but what's then the fine line between um, a you know, having confidence and also portraying that versus being delusional. Yeah, I think, I think again, depending on where you are in the stage of the business, um, you know, if you have, you know, if you have demonstrated that traction and that product market fit, you, you know, we are backing founders who want to change the world, right? Uh, I think, you know, many folks could have called, you know, Elon Musk delusional, but but you know there, there is some merit to that delusion but again it needs to be able to quant be quantified accordingly right uh, based on you know the market the product the strength of the management team market timing traction and unit economics and whatnot right so we are not afraid to back uh, dreamers um, you know but we back dreamers you know based on quantifiable data if you know if it's available And, and for all the, you know, for the one Elon Musk who we know kind of made it through, how many have failed on the way, right? So, um, but it's great to hear you talk about the product market fit because we, the first and the most popular question, and we're going directly to the audience questions is, what would you see, see as the key two to three metrics, which are the best indicators of a product market fit for social commerce models in ASEAN? Metrics as best indicators of product market fit for social commerce models in ASEAN. So maybe maybe I'll I'll have a I'll I'll have a quick crack at that. Right. Mm. I think the rule of thumb for social commerce is low low CAC and low logistics costs versus that of first gen e-commerce. That's imperative, right? The second is helping is having healthy minimum average order values, right? Um, I would say these are sort of two key rule of thumbs. Besides that, of course, you want to look at things like scale. You want to look at things like density. You want to look at things like wallet share. You want to look at things like retention and engagement, right? And on engagement, uh, you know, pertaining to frequency of purchase and how AOVs have trended. I would say these are some of the matrix that we look for uh, upfront. Yeah, I would... Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, when there, where there are agents involved, we looked at the uh, retention and the engagement of the agents as a very key KPI. Yeah. Okay. Um, then let's go directly to the next question. Um, and uh, thanks for our friend uh, Rayan Pereira joining. 
Um, what, what's your outlook on live video commerce platforms? Live video commerce platforms. Helen, you want to go first? I'm not sure. Are they talking about live streaming for e-commerce? Um, well, it's very big in China, but it's very dominated by the big players. So there's uh, Taobao uh, live streaming and there is uh, TikTok and Show as well. Uh, so I think if I have not seen many business models um, that come out of that uh, live streaming e-commerce, uh, but there are influencer uh, like MNC, um, MCN models uh, where, you know, these are like in agencies for influencers. Uh, we actually invested in one of the largest called Ruhan, which is listed on NASDAQ. Um, so that, that has emerged. Uh, other than that, you know, brands, uh, we have invested in some brands that leverage live streaming quite well, but I haven't seen any independent uh, live streaming platforms started by a, a startup. Okay. Yeah. Anything to add or? No, nothing to add there. <laughs> okay. Chris, you want to take the next questions? So, you know, it's been quite interesting. Uh, what we found is when we first entered into the COVID period and when we looked at some of the frothy valuations, there was anticipation that there will be a lot more M&A in the market and perhaps not directly on the social e-commerce, but certainly we have the opportunity to ask two prominent VCs. And the second thing, apart from M&A, was looking at potentially lower valuations. Now, I wanted to just ask Helen, particularly on M&A, according to news sources, uh, the Sendo-Tiki merger is no longer going ahead. Uh, but Helen, just your thoughts on M&A. Will it happen or, um, and, and you know, why maybe we haven't seen M&A on consolidation, which we would anticipate in any downturn uh, occur? Yeah, I, I'm a bit surprised that it has not been more M&A myself. Um, when I saw the Tiki and Sandun news, I thought it uh, it made sense for them to to do the merger. Uh, but I think there's a, a few reasons um, that maybe more you know not more M&As have happened. Uh, one is there's still a lot of uh, capital in the market. So if you uh, read the news on Traveloka, they just raised 250 million. Um, yeah, you know Travel is one of the worst hit markets. So I would have thought you know something on the M&A side of things would happen for them. Uh, but it looks like they can, you know, now be remain independent. Um, and I think that, um, you know, for Tiki and Sento, it seems like there is some um, strategic investors who um, do not agree. And we have seen that play out in China as well. Um, I was involved with uh, Mobike, which we wanted to merge with our competitor, Ofo, but, um, um, you know, it was a bit complicated on, on the Ofo side uh, because some of the strategic investors did not uh, agree. So I think that, um, where you have, you know, strategic investors, uh, sometimes their objectives are different. Um, so that would affect the, uh, the outcome. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's quite a surprise. And uh, Sachin, um, I'd like to turn to you. Uh, I was anticipating a, a, a lot more uh, down rounds, but actually what we're seeing more in the market, and I'd like your perspective is, you know, it's actually quite healthy to see. Um, I see a lot of great VCs saying, we should actually look at the long term. Um, we should pay good value. Uh, we're seeing a premium for the high quality startups um, maintained. And if anything, um, the funding is coming in terms of bridges or just pushing out the valuation question uh, till you know next year. So, can you comment a bit about valuations and any any sort of down rounds or you know has been there been calibration? Um, certainly, the 
the you know which is causing confusion to a lot of us is the private equity market certainly aren't down yeah you know i think that a few points here uh chris one is as helen mentioned market and institutions are flush with cash right it's uh there's been a de decade of low interest rates capital allocators are hungry for yield uh, and so dry powder in the alternative asset space is at an all-time high at over you know, four, $400 billion in Asia-Pacific alone, and people need to deploy. This has naturally resulted in inflated valuations, uh, especially in momentum-driven sectors such as tech, right? And I think you know, many folks have lamented on the disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street, and we've not seen a correction yet. Now, even if you look at things like down rounds and whatnot post the dot-com bubble, uh, you know, in the sort of early 2000s, there was a lag period of about 18 to 24 months. And we've, you know, we've just, you know, we are just sort of, you know, six months into this, right? Um, so I think, look, market timing is important. And, you know, winners and losers will be defined during these sort of bust periods. Thing, you know, more often than not, it pro provides a good opportunity to press the reset button in a, in a market a little bit. Um, and, you know, when, when investors get spooked and they sort of pull back, uh, that can present many exciting opportunities. Again, a question here, just given how much dry powder there is, is that if the bubble pops, is there a bubble within a bubble, right? Uh, just given how much funds have been raised uh, recently. I think, I think, you know, the, the, the more pertinent question is around the exit environment in Southeast Asia not having been validated yet. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of 2013, 2014 sort of, fun, you know, vintage funds are going to want to, you know, have to demonstrate DPIs to their LPs soon. And the question is how that evolves, right? And I think that's where the consolidation and M&A is, is bound to happen. Uh, but when that happens, the question is, is it going to be a one plus one equals three? one plus one equals two or one plus one equals 1.5. And that will really sort of determine investor sentiment in the region for a while. Which uh, leads to, you know, discussions around secondary sales, um, the bridge between VC and PE. And before I get in trouble from Lars from derailing the conversation, Lars, I, I know that you've got more audience uh, questions. Yes, uh, they're coming in. We have still over 30 questions. And I know we won't be able, sadly, to answer all of them. So. Um, will there still be a role for retail stores or O2O businesses? Uh, what's, in your opinion, the role of retail in view of social commerce and e-commerce? Who want to go first? <laughs> Alan, I'm happy to take that. And I'm happy to take that because I think O2O strategies in this part of the world uh, still do resonate. Uh, again, depending on sector, we had the privilege of investing in one of the last you know, fastest growing coffee chains in the region, not the world, uh, Coffee Kananga. Um, and it has a fantastic balance between, you know, online and offline sales channels. Um, and, you know, when you are an F&B brand, um, you know, that brick and mortar pres presence, that touchy-feely presence is so important, right? Uh, and they have a unique grab-and-go concept with you know, uh, online orders through their app and aggregators on top of that. So I definitely feel O2O strategies are here to stay. And you've also see that, seen that, you know, somewhat the reverse with like Amazon acquiring, you know, the, the Whole Foods and, uh, you know, Alibaba sort of HEMA stores, I think they are called. Uh, so, you know, even the large, 
sort of you know consumer tech players have somewhat built out these O2O strategies. Uh, and, and in this part of the world, I think, I think, I think that's very natural. Yeah, I think it's a very big topic um, because um, in Southeast Asia, I think the data I've seen is that offline retail penetration is also quite low, especially in uh, certain countries like Indonesia and Vietnam. So I think offline can grow at the same um, time that e-commerce is growing. But if you look at China, um, in certain categories, uh, offline retail is actually badly impacted, uh, both by the COVID and by e-commerce. So, for example, in apparel, I think it's about 40 to 50 percent online now. Um, so I think that if, if, if I look at the future and I see that happening, you know, I would caution a lot of players to invest uh, too much in offline. Um, I think what we do see in some uh, cases in China, the O2O that has worked very well is um, actually having your uh, shopkeepers, uh, your, your store um, staff be your uh, sort of agents um, online as well. So, you know, during COVID, uh, some of our companies that had offline stores, uh, their shop um, assistants would uh, actually have WeChat groups and then uh, help to sell products uh, through the WeChat groups uh, that really helped sales uh, during a, a very tough period. Um, thank you. I, I want to combine a few questions and we also got uh, thank you uh, questions from uh, people that registered uh, throughout the, the whole week. Um, one of them was, um, or, and I combined them, um, normally business models are all about scale. Um, so would uh, it make sense for a country like Singapore to bring up a big social commerce player or by nature it just can't be? Um, at the same time, we haven't really seen many regional uh, social commerce players, right? So uh, how does it work together? Is, is social commerce just a very local country culture relation um, and then, well, Singapore should, should just give up in that play? You know, it's quite interesting, Lars, because when we look into it, what we have in Southeast Asia is just different dominant social platforms. So mm -hmm. uh, in Indonesia, WhatsApp is, is the clear winner. Uh, in Vietnam, we have Zalo, thanks to uh, uh, VNG, which is, of course, backed by Tencent. So uh, that's, you know, and, 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 and Facebook is the number one in Thailand, but in Thailand for so long line has been prominent um i think you know we still hope that our companies can be pan-asian so but obviously um you know everybody's aware that indonesia is a pretty big uh, is the biggest market and after indonesia it would be thailand um and then you know maybe if you combine thailand malaysia singapore is, is can equal to uh, indonesia um and i think Shopee has a you know very big presence in taiwan so um, it's, it's interesting that, you know, actually e-commerce in uh, Southeast Asia is, uh, you know, you really have to talk about, you know, each specific country. And, um, but I, I think there are some, you know, there are things that you can, you can learn. And like, if you, you know, manage these uh, agents very well, that learning is transferable to another country. And also the, uh, your learnings around supply chain, around logistics are, are transferable. So that's what we look for when we look for social e-commerce companies in Southeast Asia. Hmm. Sachin, un unless you want to add to that, I want to directly go to the next question because we have so many good questions lined up. Sure. Yeah. Sure. How do you view the unit economics challenge for social commerce? Low average order values, similar marketing costs per order to traditional e-commerce despite agent channels. And you, you elaborated already a little bit on it, but it was an explicit question. So I wanted that was upvoted quite highly. So I had to answer, uh, ask it. 
Great. That's 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 a good question. Look, I think that you know a couple of a couple of points we sort of mentioned earlier. Um, you know, we, we we touched on earlier. I think that on the average orders uh, uh, side of things, um, it really depends on the business model, right? Are you a sort of S to B to C versus you know group buying versus you know direct to consumer, right? I think that. You know, the whole premise of the agent base type, you know, group buying models is so that you are able to aggregate higher AOVs in, in general, right? Um, I think if you are having a more of a direct to consumer approach, uh, then yes, your AOVs are likely to be less. Uh, but those sort of models perhaps resonate more in tier one. If your AOVs are extremely low in in you know more sort of semi-urban or rural areas where your cost of delivery and service is just generally very high, then you know I think there would be some questions around the business model, right? I mean we've looked at a number in Indonesia that have minimum order values of like two hundred dollars or one hundred and fifty dollars, where you know they start by building sort of super agents that have these higher minimum AOVs. And then once they've built density, they, they onboard basic agents that then can transact at like 30 or 40 US dollars, right? Uh, so there has to be, you know, some thinking behind it. Um, that's, that's, on, that's on that point. With most of the models we've seen, sort of marketing costs, you know, we've, we've, you know, we've tended to take more of a micro cluster approach. So we've looked at looked at micro clusters where there's product, you know, where there's product market fit to see whether, you know, again, the, the point we spoke around AOV, the other point around CAC and whether those customer acquisition costs, because if you call yourself a social commerce platform, uh, there has to be that element of organic referrals and sharing that takes place through it, right? And we've seen some interesting trends within micro clusters, right? But as these companies are scaling and because they are scaling so rapidly across cities, when they move into new cities and whatnot on, a, on an aggregate basis, the marketing you know, may, seem, uh, may seem as high or vis-a-vis um, you know, uh, sort of you know, first-gen B2C commerce player, right? Um, and finally, it's logistics costs as well. I think the biggest cost is around last mile uh, delivery. And so you've seen some models here where they are direct to consumer, but they have an agent, but the agent's only role is essentially as a, like a drop shipper, you can say that, you know, just helps with last mile delivery. So, um, you know, and that's keeping sort of, you know, trying to at least at a nascent stage, keep logistics costs to, you know, single digits uh, as a percentage of, 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 of GMB. So I think many models have been tried and tested. You know, some have worked, some haven't. Uh, but, you know, he, these are sort of some of the interesting trends that we've observed in the market. Fantastic. Um, Helen, um, I want to shift to something that, uh, that caused a debate in the Q&A here between the audience already. What's your outlook on community-based e-auctions um, in the B2B space? And how would that work? Can it work? Community-based e-auctions. Um, For I'm B2B. not sure... For B2B, okay, I'm not sure I, I have seen something like that in China. Um, yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, B2B is, is you know, very different, right, um, category. So we, we look at, when we look at B2B business marketplace, um, our biggest question is, you know, why do these players want to transact with you uh, on the platform? Why don't they just transact 
offline or you know once they don't know each other because it's a high frequency business right um and then uh, i guess but but on the SaaS side it makes sense maybe you know makes things more efficient so yeah maybe an auction b2b it makes sense um when you say community based i'm, I'm not sure <laughs> what that community is is about but um you know how is that different from a marketplace um, maybe I, I would ask the question back yeah okay Good. Um, yeah, B2B and, and, and social commerce. It sounds like it, it, it can't work, but I'm also cracking my head around it. I'm sure um, there, there are a lot of uh, uh, founders out there that uh, most likely have the, the next big idea. And, uh, you know, in a year, we'll come back to, to this platform and said, yeah, uh, we were debating it, uh, but we, we, we missed that last kind of inch of how we could get it over the line to really make a big business model, maybe. Chris? So we did actually a, a lot of questions in terms of uh, Vietnam, funnily enough. Um, everyone's been chasing uh, Indonesia for quite a while for obvious reasons. Uh, but Vietnam, um, we've been talking quite a lot about Vietnam being the next large country, which has fantastic demographics, uh, will be a net-net sort of winner um, from some of the geopolitics and some of the supply chain issues. And, and we can touch on social commerce, but just... Again, uh, we've got an audience that we want to make sure um, we answer their questions around. You know, Sachin, if you can just touch on uh, a bit around, you know, will Southeast Asia become a net winner um, out of COVID and the relative geopolitics happening at the moment? Um, and a little bit on Vietnam. And then over to you, Helen. It's a, a recurring question from a, a lot of our audience. Sure. So maybe I'll touch a little bit about Southeast Asia, right? And as a region, um, it, it's really one that demonstrates growth compounding growth, right? The consumer-led tech story here is absolutely fantastic, right? So, you know, both there are both these macro tailwinds, right? You know, a demographic dividend, a middle class that has doubled, you know, some of the fastest urbanization rates in the world and also tech tailwinds, right? A hundred million new internet users added, you know, in, in the past five years, internet ex economy expected to double and, you know, it's a mobile first economy, right? So I think something like 90% of users use their mobile as, as, as their primary tool for the internet and, you know, sort of spend, you know, in Indonesia, you know, up to sort of four and a half hours of, of mobile internet per day, so one of the highest in the world. Um, so, you know, in that context, I think, you know, Southeast Asia is tremendously positioned. Historically, the region has also been a springboard uh, for business between China and India. And given the sort of development levels there, it's only there's, there's only been a natural sort of focus towards this part of the world. I would say that, you know, uh, you know, from an, you know, from an economic sort of regulatory you know, uh, even social standpoint, fundamentally, the region is not a single market, right? There's mind-boggling diversity um, across, you know, levels of economic development and political regimes and, you know, languages and hence localization is, is a deep, deep competitive advantage, right? Um, but, you know, I think they are very sort of like structural, you know, very basic structural inefficiencies that tech can enable and tech can help solve, right? Vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, uh, someone in a tier three city in Vietnam that has not had or has had a poor, you know, access to traditional education is now able to sort of, you know, bypass those traditional means and, you know, uh, uh, tap 
um, you know, an, an ad tech platform to upskill, right? So, you know, generally very bullish on, on, you know, Southeast Asia as a region as a whole. And on Vietnam, Chris, you know, I, um, I think really the next wave um, is, is likely to come from Vietnam. I think it's a net beneficiary from the China outflows. It's an extremely, extremely resilient uh, uh, society. Uh, that's highly entrepreneurial, um, and you know it, it. You know, while they may, while the infrastructure may be poor, kids are learning how to code in schools. Right? It's the second largest labor market. It's been growing at a GDP. I mean, just look at how they've managed COVID. It's still expected to grow at a GDP of six to seven percent. And um, yeah, I think that you know it it it, it presents. Um, it presents many exciting opportunities, uh, Vietnam. And if you just look at internet sort of penetration as a percentage of GDP in Southeast Asia, it's it's the highest compared to uh, compared to its regional peers. Over to you, Helen. Um, you, you know, you've got an amazing head start in Southeast Asia with uh, uh, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia. Um, would like to just get your thoughts on Vietnam uh, and. Uh, uh, Lars, uh, sadly, uh, that's that's probably all we have time for questions for. But uh, Helen, Vietnam, please. Um, sure. I I have been to Vietnam a few times to look at companies. I think the biggest challenge we find is that um, you know the the low GDP per capita aside, I think um, very often Vietnamese entrepreneurs are only focused on Vietnam and you know, may find it hard to scale outside of Vietnam. And then um, other entrepreneurs from outside of Vietnam seem to struggle to do business in Vietnam. So we haven't found, um, you know, that how can it be a bigger opportunity, right? Beyond that um, 90 or 100 million people. Um, so that, that has been the main challenge. Having said that, we do have a company uh, called VN99, uh, which is um, like a total uh, news aggregator model. Uh, in Vietnam that we've uh, made an early investment uh, as, as a first uh, first bet. Yeah, so we continue to monitor the market to see if there are interesting opportunities that can emerge. Okay, thank you very much. Um, we also have tons of questions just about India. So I think we have to do an episode just on India soon. Unfortunately, we can't uh, bring them up in the interest of time. One question, one very last question I have to ask, uh, Chris, I was always wondering, but luckily it was somebody else asking, Chris, how do you relax and please, uh, in, a, in a sentence or two, explain your robot collection in the back of your room? <laughs> Before I had a wife and kids, I had some disposable income to buy all the toys I, I never were able to buy when I was a kid. So these are uh, Japanese Gundams and Mazingas uh, originated from Japan in the 60s and, and 70s. And the reason why they're on the high shelves is, of course, so that my kids can't touch and play with my toys. <laughs> Good. So um, I think that's what we have uh, for today. We had some fantastic insights. Thank you so much, uh, Helen and Sachin, and also some great sound bites, right, Chris? Yeah, amazing sound bites. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Sachin and, and, and Helen, for, for, for coming in today. Um, Paranoia is a great trait of founders. Um, I'm struggling to find uh, the best soundbite because there were so many good of them. Um, so paranoia is a great trait of founders. When founders say we sleep well at night, we are not able to sleep. Uh, Sachin, thank you. <laughs> Hopefully I sleep well tonight and everyone else too. <laughs> and last, maybe uh, again, sorry, I'm going to... Uh, 
find a friend because there were so many good ones. Um, Lask, have you got one for Helen? Um, again, Helen had uh, so many uh, good ones as 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 well. I'm just uh, one of the things that we looked at was um, well, uh, uh, I, I I think what was interesting to really uh, look into was um, talking about um, the uh, I think it was just really the, the sharing of uh, your your insights about. Uh, the early investments into China and then combined in how the story developed today was about, you know, what then uh, Sachin later called the foresight. So we, we actually uh, can sit, relax, see what already worked and take the best off uh, and, and then focus on that. So I thought it was a combination of, of real great insights, not necessarily just one or two punch words. Well, you know, 30 unicorns later, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more that we can learn from Helen, certainly. Good. So thank you very much. And uh, thanks to the audience, but especially to Sachin and Helen, to Chris, and also the uh, Northridge partners and uh, Precious team behind the scenes that made it happen. And uh, hopefully you're tuning in again soon for Southeast Asia Connect. Our seventh episode, which will be in the fortnight, will feature Paul Myers, who is the person that set up the Asian Development Bank ESG fund, and prior to that was also the head of Moradi Accelerator. If you are new to Southeast Asia Connect, your email has been added to our mailing list. You can always opt out, but this is our way that you can stay informed on our upcoming episodes and queue up your questions earlier on. Most of all, thank you to our listener community for being here. Together, we are harnessing technology to build a better tomorrow. I'm Chris Tran. Signing off. Goodbye. All right,